This is the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. If you would please uh, take your Bibles and open them to the book of Genesis. And I think that most everybody, if you, even if you weren't raised in, in church, you probably can find the book of Genesis. When it comes to life, or as we sometimes say, the game of life, but it's not a game, much of the time we have no control over what comes our way. Now, sometimes we, we do create stuff that comes our way, but most of the time there's no control. And I know we're tired of hearing about this, but just as an example, we had no control over the pandemic that came our way less than a year ago. Six months ago, social distancing was for people like me, introverts, that have a bubble. Six months ago, kids were throwing toilet paper into trees. TPing people's houses. Today, toilet paper, if you do that, it's a crime punishable by beheading. <laughs> Close to that. I mean, toilet paper may not be as valuable as gold, but it's, it's a lot more necessary. And it creates so many complications if you don't have any. Six months ago, if you would have known, seriously, that our church would have shut down and locked the doors seven straight Sundays as we did during the mandatory shutdown, you would have said, everybody at the Church of God Holiness is going to hell. Or the old timers used to say, going to hell in a handbasket. Six months ago, if you would have known that we would have shut down Sunday night church and Sunday school, Wednesday night groups, you would have said, I knew it all along. I just had that feeling of trussle. And the Church of God Holiness, they're just a bunch of compromisers. But, but all of this came our way. We didn't choose it. We didn't choose COVID-19. We didn't choose this parenthesis, parenthesis that, that has been inserted into our lives. We, we didn't choose the food and the paper shortages, the increase in prices. We didn't choose the face masks, the quarantines, the working from home, the forced homeschooling. Those things chose us. But here's my point. After these things chose us, they then left us with choices. And here are the two choices they left us with. They left us with the choice to either react or the choice to respond. And let me say this again. This can be applied to any problem in life, whether homework, school, play, whatever. We have two choices. We can either react to the problem or we can respond to the problem. And here's the difference. And this is the premise of our lesson. A reaction is generally fueled by the flesh. You know, something bad happens. It's natural for us to react. And maybe we react and a bad word comes out of our mouth. It's just a reaction. And, and, and let me say this. This isn't in my notes. But if that's the default when something bad happens or something a bad word comes out of your mouth, that probably indicates a heart issue. And I don't want to be judgmental, but Matthew chapter 15 talks about that out of the heart, you know, all of these other things come out, you know, attitudes and, and even words. But maybe that's the reaction. Or, or maybe we react and, and spout off and say something hurtful to, to our spouse or, or, or to a friend. We react and slam our fist against the wall or slam a door behind us. We react and, and jump in our car and throw gravel or, or burn rubber. And 
It just is so intriguing at times how we as adults many times react much in the same way that our kids react when they don't get their way. The difference is that they get a spanking, we, uh, we get arrested. But anyway, when we choose to react, and you may not realize this, but reacting sets us up to become a reflection of the patterns and behaviors that we don't like in others. So reacting sets us up to become a reflection of people that we don't respect. We say, we don't like them because they do this, but when we react, we become just like them. But the other choice that we have when something bad comes our way is not to react, rather it's to respond. Because a response and and especially the type of response we'll be talking about today, is a measured response. It's, and instead of it being fueled by the flesh, it's fueled by the Spirit. In fact, as we talk about this today, I will be referring to this response, this measured response, as a Spirit-led response. And this type of response is what enables us to turn bad things into good things. It's what enables us to turn wrong things into right things. It's what enables us to redeem pain, and instead of becoming bitter we become better. Instead of getting mad and withdrawing from the person or the organization or the church that maybe in some way disappointed or hurt you, the the measured, spirit-led response enables you to forgive and act in a way that isn't natural. And you, me, we've been invited to a life where we choose a spirit-led response as opposed to simply doing what everybody else does, as opposed to saying what everybody else says, as opposed to reacting like everybody else around us reacts. Now, the history of our, our faith is populated by men and women who have responded to hardship in, in the most unnatural ways. In fact, at the epicenter of our faith stands a man who surrendered himself to his enemies. That's not natural. He chose not to defend himself at his trial. That's not natural. He chose not to save himself. The Bible says he could have called, remember this, 12 legions of angels. And and depending whom you read after on how many a a legion represents, this probably was upward of 50, 60, maybe 70,000 angels. But Jesus did not call on them. That's not natural. Jesus, rather than reacting in the flesh, responded in the spirit now today we're going to talk about an old testament biblical character that modeled this and and what makes his story so remarkable is that he did this for 25 years which was the time frame that it took for his horrible circumstance to be finally resolved but you know it's one thing for us to say well somebody did me dirty the other day and i was tempted to let him have it and and i wanted to tell him off and call him you dirty so and so but instead i was so proud of myself and my wife was proud of me i kept it together and did not react like i wanted to it's one thing to say that about one incident it's another thing to have it said about us that after being treated dirty and unfairly for 25 years that the whole time we responded with integrity forgiveness, and love. Now, for our lesson, we're going to begin at the end of the story. That's unnatural. And then we will rewind back to the beginning. But as as soon as I read the end statement at the end of the story, 
many of you, if you were raised in church, you're going to remember the entire story. But, but I want to ask you to do me a favor and do you a favor. I want you to try to mentally and emotionally stay connected. Sometimes when we're familiar with a story, our minds tend to wander. But because this account intersects with our lives, I, I want you to stay dialed in. Because I believe this is going to be applicable for every one of us that's here today. Here's the epic story, the end to this epic story. The hero of the story makes this statement. Again, you'll recognize Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. And then we're going to jump back to 37, chapter 37. You. Who's the you? The you in this story, they're the bad guys, the power brokers, the ones who had all the control. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. Kind of what we sang about today, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Now, many of you immediately recognize those words that come from a man named Joseph. And just kind of a summary before we jump into our scripture, we will find that Joseph, through a series of unnatural responses, none of them which made any visible, noticeable, practical difference at the time, but every single one of his responses, when put together, this is so cool, they were important to the unfolding story of our faith today. Here's the background for one of the great Old Testament stories. At around 2000 BC, God wades into the mess of this sinful world by calling out a man named Abram, whom eventually we come to know as Abraham. God said to Abraham, I want you to leave everything you know and go to a place that you don't know. And I'm going to make you the father of many nations. And through one of those nations, I'm going to bless the entire world. Eventually, Abraham had a son. His name was Isaac. Isaac then had a son. His name was Jacob. Jacob then had 12 sons, which would eventually become the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. But God's plan would focus on a series of responses by one of Jacob's sons. And again, his name was Joseph. Now, Joseph was Jacob's favorite son by Jacob's favorite wife. Which leads me to say it's never a good idea to have a favorite son, unless he's an only child. And it's never a good idea to have multiple wives where you say, well, she's my favorite. Not a good idea. Besides, polygamy is against the law, just in case you were thinking about trying it. Well, because Joseph is the favorite son, naturally his, his other brothers became jealous, and, and they came to dislike their brother. Now, because these brothers were herdsmen, they would go a long distance away looking for pasture and for their sheep, for their goats, for their flocks. And, and on occasion, Jacob would send Joseph out on a mission to find them, make sure they were okay. Well, in this particular instance that sets up our story, Joseph is on a mission to find his brothers. He sees them in the distance. They're tending the sheep. But his brothers also see him coming in the distance. And, and over the days of having nothing to do but just make sure their sheep are safe, they've got a lot of time to talk. They probably talk politics and maybe a little bit of religion. But they've had plenty of time to discuss their borderline hatred for their brother Joseph. And so when they see Joseph coming in the distance, 
a plan begins to develop in their minds. And, and by the time Joseph gets to them, they've solidified that plan and they've made a decision. They're done. They're done. They can't take Joseph anymore. And they're not going to take Joseph anymore. They can't take the fact that he gets preferential treatment from daddy. They can't take the fact that at times as a teen, Joseph probably unwisely flaunts the fact that he's the favorite. Throw it in their face. So they're done. And they come up with a plan to rid themselves of their biggest frustration. Here's the plan. They take Joseph. Strip him of his exterior clothes. And, and his dad had made him a very colorful outer garment that in Genesis chapter 37 verse 3 is referred to as a coat of many colors. It was not the typical drab colored garment that most shepherds wore. But his brothers strip him of that coat of many colors, throw him into a dry well. Well, after a little while, they begin to second guess themselves and they, they begin debating well, should we let him die of natural causes in the well, or, or, or should we just go ahead and kill him? That's where we pick up our story, Genesis chapter 37, verse 26. Judah. Who was Judah? Well, he wasn't the oldest brother. In this time, generally the oldest brother was the leader, but Judah was actually the fourth oldest. But he seemed to rise up as the leader of the brothers. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? In other words, guys, I don't think we should kill him. And in the next sentence, he gives his idea. He said, instead of killing him, why don't we make some money off of him? Verse 27, come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites. Let's make some money off of him and not lay our hands on him. And, and then if you're not paying attention here, you will miss this. It's, it's very thin. It's very frail, but it's a thread of mercy woven into this account. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agree. So they sell Joseph to these slave traders. After a few days, the brothers go home and they they lie to their father and say, Dad, we've got some horrible news. Our, our, our brother Joseph was killed by a wild animal. And they reach into their knapsacks and bring out this coat of many colors that they had dipped in sheep or goat blood to fool Dad into thinking that he had been killed by a wild animal. And, and parents, you can just kind of imagine here just the emotion. Jacob's heart was broken. In verse 34, it says, Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. And so back in those days, they would do that. They would tear their clothes and put on sackcloth. Sometimes they would take ashes and rub it over their face. That was part of the mourning process. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him. They said, Dad, it's going to be okay. The Bible says he refused to be comforted. No, he said, in mourning. In grief, will I go down to the grave to my son? And, and again, catch the emotion here. So his father wept for him. Well, even though Jacob thought his son was dead, you know the story. Joseph was very much alive. Jumping on to Genesis chapter 39, verse 1. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, and remember this name, Potiphar. In fact, on the count of three, everybody say Potiphar. One, two, three, Potiphar. 
Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. So he was a high up there in, in, in politics and in the army. And he bought him, Potiphar bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. Now, now here is where we need to call a time out and pause because this is where Joseph's story perhaps begins to intersect with your story. Keep in mind that nobody is looking for, uh, for Joseph. Do you know how old Joseph is? Joseph is 17 years old here. Nobody's looking for him because those that would be concerned about him think he's dead. So nobody's looking for him. But worse yet, nobody is looking out for him. Nobody's looking for him. Nobody is looking out for him. He's left as a 17-year-old boy, more than likely a bit spoiled, sheltered because he was the favorite child, but he's left in this very vulnerable, in his very vulnerable teenage years. In fact, looking back on, on this part of Joseph's life, and, and this week I was thinking about it, and I hadn't heard this referred to, but it just seemed to fit this word picture. It almost reminds you of a pinball in a pinball machine. Those of you oldies that used to go to the arcades and play pinball, and you got Joseph in his very vulnerable years bouncing off of multiple horrible situations that keep coming his way. And maybe that's how you feel right now. You feel that nobody is looking for you and nobody is looking out for you. You feel alone. You can kind of relate to that visual picture of the pinball that's bouncing off of one bad situation after another. For you, maybe, instead of remission, there was relapse. Maybe instead of reconciliation, there was divorce. Maybe instead of coming out of depression, the darkness got worse, deeper, thicker. You know, the truth is we all have our own story. Well, as we continue to follow Joseph's narrative, we find in the very next verse of our reading a short, surprising statement that very easily could cause us to react and say, yeah, right, sure. And the reason I say this is because this statement doesn't match up with the Christianity of a lot of people. Here's this short statement in verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph. That statement creates a, a problem for a lot of Christians, including some of us here today, because we think if the Lord were with Joseph, his brothers would not have thrown him into the well. If the Lord were with Joseph, with Joseph, he would not have been sold into slavery. If the Lord were with 17-year-old Joseph, he would have protected him and not allowed him to go through what he did. I mean, isn't that what we say? We say, well, God's got your back. It'll be okay. He'll take care of you. Don't worry. And and then one of my pet peeves is when people say, well, when God closes a door, he opens a window. What, what does that mean? We say, well, when God is with you, things always work out. If you were raised under this false theology, I'm really sorry. Because that's not the God of the Bible. 
Yes, the God of the Bible is a loving God. In fact, He loves us more than we could ever imagine. And, and He is always watching over us. But the God of the Bible knows that for the development of our spiritual character, storms in life are a must. Storms are not optional. In this life, you will have trouble. Storms are required. And over and over again in the Bible, down through history, we find men and women who faced extraordinary storms, but, listen, but they discovered God through that storm. And he used that storm to mold them and to shape them into men and women of godly character. So the Lord is with Joseph, but luck is not with Joseph. The Lord is with Joseph, justice is not with Joseph. The Lord is with Joseph, but fairness is not with Joseph. Let's keep on reading. The Lord was with Joseph, and he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. And you know, Potiphar was so impressed with him. Verse 3, when his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes, became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household. He entrusted to his care everything he owned. Now, let me just insert a little detail that we most of the time don't think about. With Joseph's promotion to being in charge of Potiphar's household, you're almost led to believe that Joseph now had to be happy. But here's what you need to understand. In ancient times, not wealth, but your freedom was your greatest gift. And so even though Joseph found favor in the eyes of Potiphar, being in charge of his household was still a small consolation. Why? Because Joseph remained a slave. Well, the story continues, and in verse 5, we see something that if we would think about it could really bother some of us, including me. From the time he put him in charge of his household and all that he owned, and this is what seems unfair, the Lord blessed, listen, the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So who was blessed? Potiphar. Who was Potiphar? This ungodly, sinning pagan. To which I want to say, where's the fairness in this story? Who's the one who's been faithful to God? Joseph. Who's the one who was blessed because of Joseph's faithfulness? This pagan. Why didn't God bless Joseph instead. The Bible shows us how Joseph remained faithful, and I was thinking about this. What's so amazing is that Joseph has no scripture to encourage him. You know, when we're down, we can go to God's word and be encouraged. Joseph has no Bible. When we're down, we can text a friend and have them pray for us. Joseph, have you ever thought about this? Joseph had, Joseph had absolutely no Christian friends in Egypt. Zero. When we're down, we can play a song or, uh, you know, whatever, you know, a poem, whatever that lifts our spirits. And Joseph has no iTunes playlist. He has no K-Love radio station to listen to. 
Joseph had none of the sources of encouragement that we have. But here's what he had done. He had decided that he would respond rather than react. And he had decided that he would live in light of of the godly heritage that had been passed down from his great-grandfather Abraham to his grandfather Isaac on down to his daddy Jacob. Now, if you know this story, you'll remember what happens next. And that pinball, remember, that we keep referring to? Joseph bounces into another totally unfair, undeserved circumstance, and he finds himself in a no-win situation. In fact, regardless of whatever he does, he's going to lose. Verse 6, so he left in Joseph's care everything he had with Joseph in charge. He did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now, this next statement is almost like it's out of place. Now, Joseph was well-built and handsome. Uh Uh-oh. And if this were a movie, it's not a movie, it's, it's real life. But if this were a movie, the soundtrack would change. Joseph was well built and handsome. Verse 7, and after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. Now understand, this, this was not seduction. This was not, hey, babe, you know, Potiphar's at work and won't be home until this evening. The servants are on their lunch break. Why don't we take advantage? Just you and me. You can come into my bedroom. We'll have a good time. And this was not seduction. This was not just flirting. This was an order. This was a command. Joseph belonged to her. As a slave, he was her property. And so again, this puts Joseph in a no-win situation because if he, requests, if he rejects the request of his master's wife, he will more than likely be punished. Why? Because he's being insubordinate. He belongs to her. But then if he does what she's commanding him to do, and Potiphar finds out, and he will, Joseph will be punished as well. Joseph is between a rock and a hard place. It's, we, we talk about win-win. This is lose-lose. And obviously, I don't know this, but I have to imagine that Joseph had to have felt the way that we do when we have tried to do everything right, yet it didn't work out. You know, we tried to tithe faithfully. We still had trouble making ends meet. We tried to reconcile with that friend or relative, but things are still tense. We we tried to raise our kids right, but they still went down the wrong road. We, we, We tried to hold our marriage together. But he or she still walked out. And so in Joseph's case, there is zero chance. Catch that? Not one percent. Zero chance that this will have a happy ending. And he's smart enough to know that this will probably at least mean prison for him, maybe even death. But in spite of that, Joseph chooses to not react in the flesh. Let's see what happened in verse 8. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he's entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you. Because you're his wife. And this next statement makes me realize how spiritually immature I am. He says, How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Now, now wait a minute, Joseph. You said 
let me catch this. You, you said, how could you do such a wicked thing and sin against God? You, you mean the, the God that supposedly has your back? Have you forgotten you're like a pinball bouncing from one unfair circumstance to another? Uh, Joseph, let's review your resume. Joseph, son of Jacob. Today we would say Joseph, Jacob's son. Here's the resume. Kidnapped once, sold twice. So, so Joseph, this, this God that on his watch let this happen to you, is this the, you're, this the one you're wanting to remain faithful to? I mean, the God who hasn't done anything good for you recently? You're worried about sinning against him? What's wrong with you, Joseph? You know the account, Potiphar's wife is relentless in verse 10, and though she spoke to Joseph day after day, so she didn't just try this once, day after day. By the way, how many of us would have held out? Would you? Would I? I mean, that was flattering. The boss's wife wanted him a slave? Huh. That'd be pretty tempting. He refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. So Joseph not only resists, but he comes to the point, he refuses to even be in the same room with her. That's super humiliating for Potiphar's wife. She's a very important person, a wealthy, influential lady, more than likely beautiful. She's used to getting her way. And now she has been rejected by whom? By a slave. That is embarrassing. Humiliating. So, one last ditch effort. Very direct, very aggressive. Verse 11, one day, he went into the house to attend to his duties. None of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. And even though, let's say that you've never heard this story before, you already know that it's about to get ugly. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed when he heard me scream for help. What a lie. He left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. And So she's telling her servants, but then she lies to her husband and she kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him the story again. As soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. And, and here's what's so ironic. Have you thought of this? She accuses Joseph, accuses Joseph of doing the very thing he refused to do. Well, predictably, when Potiphar finds out, he is furious. Verse 19, when his master heard the story his wife told him, saying, this is how your slave treated me, he burned with anger. And I, I went back and looked into the original Hebrew language, the, the word burned, because I wanted to know exactly what burned meant. Do you know what it meant? Burn. There was nothing else. Burned. He was boiling. He burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. 
Now, without minimizing what you're going through, let me try to put Joseph's circumstances in context for a moment. Joseph is now going to pay for the very crime he avoided. And why is he paying for it? Because he avoided it. And so again, Joseph has to update his resume. It now looks like this. Joseph, son of Jacob, or Joseph, Jacob's son, kidnapped once, sold twice, framed, imprisoned unjustly. Now, because uh, you would be upset with me if I spent another 30 minutes on the rest of this story, which I would like to, I hate leaving us hanging, but I have to preach a funeral here in just a little bit. We're going to have to pick up the story next week, Lord willing. In the meantime, here's what I want us to do. Here's your assignment. I want us to kind of wrestle with some questions here I want to throw out to you. How would we respond to the different storylines in this account? How would we respond if we were mistreated and abandoned by our family? How would we respond if we lost our marriage when we fought for it with everything within us? How about this one? How would we respond to sexual advances from a person that was attractive and in a higher position? This is probably one that really would get to most of us. How would we respond being framed and treated unjustly? Would our reaction come from the flesh or would we respond in the spirit? And, and, and I want to close with this very convicting thought. You, you and I, we're no better than our reactions and our responses. Sometimes we react and we say, well, it just, I had no control. You know, it just came out or just happened. If our default is always to react in the flesh, we're no better than that. But hopefully there is that within us that enables us to have a spirit-led response. Never underestimate the power of a measured spirit-led response. Again, Joseph, as I said at the very beginning, just a series of individual responses. One didn't make a difference, but whenever you put all of them together, we're going to find out next week, Lord willing, that what an amazing story. And this was the means for the salvation of his family, thousands of other people, but also it gets down to where it reaches Cedar County because his response made a difference in us. Never underestimate the power of a measured spirit-led response and the domino effect of your decision to respond rather than to react to events and circumstances that you didn't choose. So, that's your homework for this week. It's easy, isn't it? Piece of cake. May God this week help us to be have a measured spirit-led response instead of a reaction. Lord, you uh, 
you really convicted me this week as I studied this account. And Lord, uh, I just pray that you would help us to respond, have a measured response that's spirit-led. Forgive us for those times that we've reacted, where we've said stuff that we didn't, we shouldn't have said, or thought stuff we shouldn't have thought, or gone to fight battles that we shouldn't have fought. But Lord, I pray that we would understand that life is going to be unfair at times. Someone else is going to get treatment that they don't deserve, and sometimes our righteousness, someone else is going to get rewarded for it. And it's going to be tempting for us to say unfair, unjust. It's going to be tempting for us to just pout. But I pray, God, that we would have a spirit-led response because we never should underestimate what will happen whenever we respond in the spirit. So, God, this week and in the weeks to come, I pray that things would be different and Lord, instead of being fueled by the flesh, I pray that we would be fueled by the Holy Spirit. So, Lord, I pray a blessing upon my friends. Thank you for my friends that are here and that are watching and maybe those that I don't even know, but I pray a blessing upon them. Let us follow the precious guide that you've given us. You said, I must go away, but I will send the Holy Spirit. Let us follow the leadership of the Holy Spirit. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen and amen. One thing I would encourage you, why don't you read the rest of the story, study the rest of the story, and then that way whenever I get there, you've already been soaking and meditating on Scripture, and I think it'll be a lot more meaningful to you. Thank you. Have a good week. You've been listening to the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Our messages are archived at www.eldochurch.com or to order compact discs or DVD videos of the messages, call the church at 417-876-2200. Thank you for listening.